Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm I'm better, David. I, I woke up feeling like a dog-chewed Bart Simpson doll lying in landfill, but uh, <laughs> I got on the case, and uh, I, I feel much better now. Perfect. Excellent. That's a very vivid description. I like that a lot. Thank you. It, Thank you. It's, it's I, almost like you're a writer or something. Well, I guess it does sort of. I thought it was a little bit more uh, audience friendly than saying a meth head's pet box turtle flushed down a toilet. <laughs> um, but that was also on my mind. Um, well, it's a good thing you didn't say that one. Um, yeah. Well, Chris, if you don't mind here at the top of the show, I'd like to do something that I've been forgetting to do which is a quick call to action. So we are now on episode 19 and we've been getting some great feedback. Shout out, by the way, to the listener who sent us that brilliant email about the Sargasso Sea. That's fantastic. And we're going to respond to you very quickly. But what I'd like to say is that the listenership is full of incredibly smart and talented people. We sort of have this core audience of exactly who we'd like to have listening to this show, but what we need is is more people listening to it. And it's my fault because I haven't mentioned this beforehand, but what I would like for you to do, if you have some spare time, would be to please leave a review for us on iTunes. Now, whether it's positive or negative, that doesn't matter. I'm sure most of you would say nice things, I would hope. But it really doesn't matter. All that matters is that we get some reviews up there because that helps us move up in the ranking and makes the podcast more visible to other people. The second thing is that I would really appreciate this being shared on your social media feeds, whether that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, maybe not Pinterest. But we would like to get this out to more people. So if this gives you some kind of value, if you enjoy listening to this show, if you like what Chris and I do, Tell somebody about it. If every, if every single one of you told one person about it every week, of course, we'd grow exponentially. And then uh, maybe we could do a few other cool stuff that we have planned. So that's my spiel. Thank you for listening. But uh, Chris, what are we going to talk about today? Okay. Well, um, I thought we got onto a very interesting topic last week in terms of the search for genius. And uh I certainly have gotten a lot of feedback from uh, friends and colleagues uh, encouraging sort of further investigation of that. I, I, I think that what we were talking about in, in kind of umbrella terms was the, the notion of culturally defined genius being for the last half century at least, perhaps even a whole century, having been fairly vigorously defined in terms of, of uh, math and science capability, uh, perhaps math being more uh, to the fore. Um, we might say that Einstein was is sort of the emblematic, iconic figure of that. Unfortunately, of course, history and no culture is gifted with an endless supply of of people of that caliber. And I think we were getting to a point where we're looking at some latter-day STEM subject guru type of people who are uh, seen as geniuses and and certainly are obviously, you know, intellectually very capable. But 
the idea that we were wrestling with is, is should genius be defined purely in those terms? And we were talking in terms of, say, uh, Ray Kurzweil, who is the uh, head of technology for Google now, very famous inventor on many fronts. We were talking about Stephen Wolfram, uh, who was the youngest uh, recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, got a PhD from Caltech at 20 and, you know, and is uh, now an entrepreneur sort of uh, mathematician uh, with some very interesting ideas. So we didn't want to subtract from, from those people, but we did want to point out some, some other uh, models of genius. And we looked at John Lautner, the Frank Lloyd Wright protege architect. Uh, we looked at Jean-Michel Basquiat, the uh, young painter who tragically died at 27. I just think his stuff is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it just... Not everything. He was painting so quickly, thank goodness. Um, but the energy and the, the mystic integrity of it. Um, and then also, uh, in a very different frame, but in a scientific frame, Jane Goodall, uh, I, who I think is just a voice of wisdom and one of the great um, pioneers of, of the conservation movement. And... Uh, uh, bridging back, you know, humans with the, the great animal and larger life continuum. So I thought we'd kind of maybe carry on with looking at um, some other examples uh, of genius. Um, but as a way of getting in, I, I had an insight, David. I, 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 had a, I had a thought about something that I want to see if you agree with. I'm, I'm going to just um, – this is a, a quote from uh, – an artist named Adolf Gottlieb, who was a contemporary of uh, Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning uh, in New York, the New York School. And I, I, kind of, I read this uh, quotation and I thought of you, David. He says, and bear in mind, this is a, this is a visual artist, mm-hmm. okay? okay? My favorite symbols are always those which I don't understand. And when I read that, I thought that, you know, we started off this enterprise of of the podcast talking about the difference between artists seeking to explore rather than just express. Mm -hmm. That, you know, anyone can kind of express themselves. You can just burp or, you know, fall out of your chair and (laughs) you've kind of expressed yourself. Uh But exploring is something very, very different. And as I read more about, um, I I wasn't actually that familiar with Gottlieb's paintings because he was, you know, up against some pretty heavyweight competition. But I like this. um, This is a piece that he and Mark Rothko uh, wrote for uh, a joint exhibition. And I'll just read a couple of them. Okay. To us, art is an adventure into an unknown world which can be explored only by those willing to take the risk. Mm. Mm. I love that. The world of imagination is violently opposed to common sense. And finally, we profess spiritual kinship with primitive and archaic art. 
And, you know, when I read this and I'm looking at his work, to me that kind of captured some of the things that we've been talking about in terms of trying to define for listeners what we mean by magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's connected with with this sort of mystical sense of the world, which is in opposition to common sense and to the nice computer algorithms that we're kind of living in terms of now. And it, it really is a resistance to that. How, how do you feel about that kind of... Um, that 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 framework that that you, that our definition of genius sort of hinges on the mystical. Well, I love it. I love all of that. There's a lot of stuff that I want to touch on. The first being that mystical for me is a trigger word that gets me salivating. Uh, I think that I would be keen to investigate someone if they were called a mystical shoemaker or a mystical mathematician. <laughs> If you put the right, word mystical right. in front of it, that's perfect branding for me because I'm so interested in it. Now, <laughs> mystical tends to, by by its nature, be concerned with the inner world of the person who is doing the seeking. But the seeking, I think, is the important part there, right? So yes, the mystic is the mystic is somebody who is not uh, caught up in. It's not ignorant of, but is also not caught up in the orthodoxies and the doctrines of whatever medium they're working in, right? So mm-hmm. there's somebody who is constantly looking to explore the boundaries, to to press things forward, to do a lot of inner work in service of doing that. And so I think that um, going back to the Gottlieb quote that you were talking about, where you know his favorite symbols were the ones that he didn't understand, if that's not a, a mystical credo, I don't know what is. Because yes, you know, you, know well what I, you know what I mean. Because it's it's essentially, um, gosh, I don't want to jump too far ahead and start talking about the artists. But when you look at the at art, I think that really is effective for me, at least. It's art that seems to uh, be as obtuse and and unknown to the artist as it does to the person who is absorbing it right and a common criticism of this is that oh well that just it doesn't it doesn't mean anything but i would argue that it's not that it doesn't mean anything it's that it means something that we haven't figured out yet right so it's that first step on the moon or the first step into a a jungle that hasn't been touched by humans in years it doesn't mean that there's no meaning on the moon or in that jungle it just means that we're we're taking steps here towards things that we might not get in our lifetime that might not be understood by anybody ever, but that, again, to go back to that inner, inside it makes us feel something, right? So those are the yeah. two sides of the mystic coin, I think, is an intense inner reflection, a, a deep a deep longing and, and urge to go inside to find things, and then also the ability to have a kind of almost childlike delight with the incomprehensible things that you bring back with you. Right. Well, you know, Baudelaire's famous, you know, definition of genius is just childhood regained at will, which I think is worth repeating endlessly. But there are several things about that, about what you've just said that really just charged me up. One, I think I love the idea that, that the idea of the mystic 
And let's just think of that in terms of like a tarot card, for instance, if that were an, uh, uh, it's not, but if say it was, in, if you were depicting it in that way, you would have implicit in that image, the seeker or the pilgrim. You know, you wouldn't have to say that. You don't have to say a mystic seeker or a mystic pilgrim or a mystic explorer. That's inherent in that idea. And I love that. I think that's something to really, um, because a lot of people don't think of that that way. They think of that sort of mysticism is just kind of anything you want. It to, they they have a really right. uh, simplified, like it's just nonsense. Yeah, weird or surreal or something. But that's not it, is it? No, it's absolutely not it. And there are so many great examples of some very, very powerful minds performing within some fairly uh, robust frameworks who nonetheless... Uh, you know, we're absolute mystics. And I, I think that it's it almost the moment I hear mysticism uh, denigrated implicitly or or not. Uh, I mean, the more explicit, the, the more I, uh, upset I get. But even it, just that slight, uh, you know, whiff of, of dismissal, mm. I know I'm in the presence of someone I'm not really going to be simpatico right 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 it's a fault line that just no matter what what transpires i'll I'll come back to that that point of of just no Mm -hmm. (laughs) i should have known you know that was it yeah well that was the test case well you think of you know some of the great like uh you know saint Teresa of avila right who's uh did the interior castle who wrote the interior castle and this person who kind of spent their life in deep meditation and prayer i think that sort of really exemplifies the inner work matching the outer work another one who comes to mind is a favorite of both of ours uh david lynch right who's possibly my favorite filmmaker and i'm sure he rates with you pretty high as well Oh, very hot. Well, he's our first artist to sort of to talk about in terms of genius. Do we want to uh, to jump in and and yeah. uh, and we'll keep touching back on the Gottlieb quote as as we talk. The connection that I was that I was uh, making there between uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and and David Lynch is that Lynch is famous for his transcendental meditation. So he does 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon, and he's done it for decades. It doesn't matter what he's doing, what film he's working on. It's understood that he's going to take these breaks and do what he calls catch the big fish, which is the name of a very short but very, very, very effective book that I have read and listened to once on a very long car trip by him. And so what he does when he's uh, meditating, he lets whatever come up uh, whatever comes up comes up and he relates the way that he gets ideas to to catching those fish he talks very specifically about the severed ear in blue velvet as being a fish that he caught and he had no idea where that was going to lead him but that ended up becoming one of his best films i think so that's that was that connection that i was making there i think it's very very interesting i would call him a mystic for sure Oh, absolutely. Well, look, I think it's a great way to introduce him. And I, I think we, we, we want to spend some time with I, I would just say that uh, as a promotion, in a sense, for I, I've uh, been watching a master class, you know, this sort of video learning program. And there's some great people in there. I think I've mentioned Penn and Teller and uh, Gary Kasparov. Um, and interestingly enough, David, just to follow up on one of, of your mention of intuition, you know, 
Kasparov was that's his definition of human intelligence versus artificial intelligence is the mystical quality of intuition mm -hmm. and I think that's worth following because I mean he is not the kind of, of mind that you would necessarily expect that point of view from uh, because he does seem to a lot of humanities and, and art people is kind of or I think he would seem uh, kind of computer-like, mm -hmm. but he's not really at all. And, and of course, relative to an actual AI system, he's completely not. He, he really has a, makes a beautiful case for, for the power of, of intuition. But when um, that got me sort of watching the, the David Lynch masterclass, and I have to say, you, you owe it to yourself to enroll in this program just to hear uh, Lynch's segment it is just absolutely sublime you don't have to know or like anything about his work you don't have to have any uh, desire to ever make films or be part of the filmmaking process in any way he is just so damn entertaining it is just and they're not going to be people like that you know forever you know he's 74 mm -hmm. uh, he he looks still hip but he's he's got his he's not shaved for it and he's smoking the whole time which just, <laughs> just never I don't know, I'm sorry it just seems quit. cool he never quit blasting those cigs did he no and I'm <laughs> I I just I know we should not encourage any of that but I just He's just in a special, you know, category. Yeah. Um, smoking smoking but, looks kind of cool. I did it for 10 years, so, you know, I can't... Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't you know, from my high perch of a current non-smoker, I, I, it would feel wrong to me to, <laughs> to, to begrudge people looking cool. But it will kill you, so don't do it, anybody. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, right. It, it just... But he's just so amazing. His his uh, and I, it got me thinking about. Um, I mean, he does share some really really wonderful insights, both personally from his life, but I think things that make a great deal of sense uh, in the film industry, uh, in in life, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But like, I I made a um, just a short list of my three favorite scenes, David, and I, I'm sure you're going to have yours. Okay. My first one, my first one, um, and I, I really owe Ty Burr, who is the film critic for the Boston Globe, was a college mate of mine, and he actually founded a film society at my college. He was very knowledgeable about films then, and he was an enormous part of my film education, but he got a racer head shown and actually got Lynch on the phone for a midnight showing. I don't know where I think I assume Lynch was, was in LA then, uh, but we were back on the East coast. And so we got to, you know, and we, no one, none of one, you know, he, this was new still. It was, mm -hmm. uh, a racer head wasn't the legendary thing that it was, but I, I love the dinner scene of, We've got chickens tonight. Strange damn things. <laughs> yeah. They're man-made. Yeah. Little damn things. Smaller than my fist. But they're new. Hi, I'm Bill. <laughs> so great. You know, I mean, that whole uh, that whole scene through the mother's catatonic, orgasmic sort of whatever you you know, when the chicken starts bleeding or giving mm -hmm. birth to, you know, the whole just bizarro thing I mean 
for me, that was that brought the first time I'd ever had dinner over at a girlfriend's house. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was it. What fortunately, my real life experience wasn't quite that traumatic, but it was very, very weird. So I think that 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 ability to have something that is certainly surreal, uh, very dreamlike, and yet there is this weird sort of resonance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, my number two one is The Mystery Man, which I just, you know, Robert Blake and Bill Pullman mm-hmm. at the cocktail I can, party. I can, recite in, that. I can recite that scene from heart. Do it. Do it. Do it for us. Okay, Go on. Okay, cool. So let me set the scene. Bill Pullman's at a party. There's some hip jazz music going on. It's like boop, 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 boop. Spooky. And he sees, he sees Robert Blake from across the room, and Robert Blake is making a beeline for him, right? And he goes to him, and when he does, the the sound in the movie drops off, right? You don't hear the music outside anymore. <clears throat> and um, the mystery man says, we've met before, haven't we? And Pullman says, uh, I don't think so. Uh, and then the mystery man says, after that, uh, I was at your house? Something I said I could say it from heart, and now I'm fumbling it. Right? He says no, I could. Pullman. Pullman goes. Where is it you think we met? That's it. Where is it you may think we met? And they said, Did, doesn't he say at your house? Yeah. 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 And he says he says something. And he's like, I don't. I don't think so. He's like, Yeah. As a as a matter of fact, I'm there right now. And Pullman says, What do you mean you're there right now? He says, At your house. I'm there right now. He takes out this big bulky '90s cell phone. Right. And he says, right. he says, go ahead, call me. And so Bill Pullman dials the number and hears it ringing on the other side. And it, the guy says, uh, he's, like, I, he's like, I told you I was here. Right. So it's Robert Blake's voice on the other end of the line. And then they both uh, start to do this maniacal laugh. I butchered that, but you you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a fucking great, freaking great scene. Sorry. Um, yeah, go ahead. It, it, it is just, um, I mean, that's a very, very strange film. And I think that when, uh, when, he, when Lynch gets into composite characters and real deep dream distortion of time and the narrative line, I, I, I can understand why some people just uh, can't keep up with it. And Lost Highway does have a kind of a, a, a dark to it but I think Pullman is so beautifully cast and Robert Blake is the mystery man who's got this kind of uh, pancake uh, makeup on that's a little bit sort of uh, redolent of, of no theater in, in you know Japanese no theater uh, so there's a kind of ceremonial ritual combat thing going on there but when I saw that I thought to myself you know that is uh, one of those moments that no one else could have written and and visualized mm-hmm. other than Lynch. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just at his very very best. He's in, he does that, and you just think, my God, I don't know how anyone thought of that. That that just opens up new emotional, spiritual, psychological terrain for me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I was just flabbergasted. Um, so. It's interesting that um, because, I mean, the, the, the flip side of this is, or the, the, the downside, if you will, is that Lynch really does create, uh, so, you know, he raises the bar for himself very high. Um, 
My uh, the third favorite moment is is the cowboy scene in Mulholland Drive, um, and for people who who feel like they don't connect with Lynch, uh, or they they connected maybe with say Blue Velvet, which is I, I mean to me that's completely coherent and and very straightforward, but um, not for everyone. Uh, Mulholland Drive, it, there are some really good uh, ex applications, if you like, online. Um, there's one, and I don't, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but she's a British chick. She has a quite a rich uh, English accent. Um, and she does a really good job. And I, I, and I but there are a couple of them that, that do, um, that really make sense of, of Mulholland Drive. And that was an interesting project because it was meant to be the pilot for a TV series, you know. And for people, you know, who think about pilots, you know, that's, that's not like that has a very special brief, you know. It's not supposed to sort of round out as a standalone film. It's supposed to, you know, lead you on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there are a couple of moments uh, in in Lynch's his career that I I think that um, you know that aren't really up to speed, and it. Um, I enjoyed in the master class he was talking about the the painful experience of Dune, which he considers a great failure, and of course most people did. Uh, his favorite part of it, though, and is my favorite part. It's the the guild navigator mm-hmm. who uh, you know appears. He can they they fold space right. and can travel instantaneously, but I mean, really looks like this uh, analyte or segmented worm in this enormous Victorian sort of steampunk glass museum case. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lynch said, well, that was his favorite part of it. And of course, he, he, you know, kind of only visualized. He didn't sort of make it. But he said, it's really, though, you know, when you think about it, it's just a, it's a fleshy giant grasshopper, you know? <laughs> it's, uh, instead of the, 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 you know, the exoskeleton, it's just sort of fleshy. And, right. But to hear him say fleshy and, and is just... That's such a treat, you know. Yeah. It's it's no, it definitely is. I, so I have I have a few moments uh, that, that were probably the most impactful to me, um, and two of them are the two moments in film that I've been more terrified than I've ever been in my entire life. Okay. Oh. So. Oh, tell me. So number one is Mulholland Drive, and it's the dumpster scene. Um, oh, so behind Winkies, yes, right? Yes, by Winkies. So there's the, the first. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this scene where a guy is meeting his therapist at Winkies, and they're talking in the booth. And the guy asks him to tell him about a dream that he had recently, and he tells him in detail about. They walk out of the diner. They walk towards this dumpster, and when they get to the dumpster, there's this thing, this person behind the dumpster, and it scares him so bad that he essentially has a heart attack and dies. And so the therapist right. says, well, why don't we go look at it? Why don't we go check it out? And, <laughs> and the guy's terrified to do this, right? Like, he doesn't want to. So they get closer and closer to the dumpster, and you think, uh, well, there's going to be some kind of gag or, you know, there's some kind of, you know, punchline, the setup, this thing that you're not expecting. And it turns out the thing that you're not expecting the most is for this frightening looking person to actually come out from behind the dumpster. And it gives Yeah, the that's a good point. That's a good point. You, you get so much setup for it. Yeah. The last thing you expect is that, you know, that's, and, and from memory, um, 
it, it's not one of those uh, moments of boo. You know, it, it, it's it, it's not that fast. It's more of like that's just the the, the person or creature that's yeah. behind there. Yeah. Um, and it set it up. Yeah, to the that point. was very scary. Yeah, it set it up to the point to I think the, what Lynch does there is that you're in that guy's head. You're right there with him. Right. Like you're being forced to relive this nightmare that he had with him. And you just want nothing more than for there to be nothing behind that dumpster to breathe a sigh of relief. But that and that thing shows up at the end again with the blue box. Yes. Right? It's, yes, it's sitting right. there with the blue box. It all yeah. ties into this big puzzle thing that, you know, as you said, Chris, you can you can go online and, and figure it all out if you want to, or you can figure it out for yourself. So the second scary one is an Inland Empire, uh, which I don't remember why this was happening. I don't remember much of that movie, frankly. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a bit where if there's one thing Lynch is amazing at, it's it's atmosphere and creating these moments of tension with this sort of like low bass rumble that'll show up. Yes, his, 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 the, the, the music is great, of course, but I, I, I really admire that, that ambient, industrial, ominous yeah. sound thing that he's got going that really, really works psychologically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're in this hallway with Laura Dern, and she sees a figure at the end of the hall, and she starts coming towards it, and it cuts away to the figure... And then when it cuts back to her, her face is stretched out and there's this kind of alarming sound that happens with it. And then you cut back to the um, the mystery figure again. And then when you cut back to her, there's this like this very strange effect that Lynch does where it's Laura Dern's body. But there's this kind of cut out hole in the screen and there's this strange creature that looks like it's dripping blood through the hole. You remember this scene? Uh, sort of, okay. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm trying to... I, I'm wondering... Yeah, I'm kind of seeing it differently, though. So, yeah, keep going. Well, the, the stretched-out face in particular, um, when that happened, I was watching it. I think I was maybe 14 or 15 years old, and I was watching it on DVD in my room. I was, I got into Lynch early, the way some people get into drinking and smoking. I got into Lynch. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was a real popular guy. <laughs> but... Um, I was laying on my floor watching it, and when that stretched face come came on the screen, I physically recoiled from it and like scooted back across the floor, which has never happened to me before or since. It, no matter what the jump scare or anything in a film is, I've never. It was completely uh, unintentional, right? It was completely. It was just a reaction my body had. I had to get away from that from that image. So those are two very powerful, scary ones. And then the third one is in Twin Peaks, The Return, which is that famous now uh, episode eight, which sort of gives you the whole history of Twin Peaks as a town, which starts off with the A-bomb going off in Los Alamos and the camera floats into the explosion and we're treated to this crazy light show inside of it. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just a masterpiece. Okay, that's interesting because you don't have then any in your at least in your top three, mm-hmm. uh, any of the humorous sort of ridiculous sides. Um, I, I I have to admit, like though a lot of those aren't the ones that come first to mind. But the moment I start to think about them, I I I just start laughing hysterically. Remember in the original Twin Peaks series. 
when Kyle McLaughlin as you know uh, Agent Cooper is getting is throwing rocks to work out who the you mm. know the possible suspects are, and it has to do with you know a technique that he learned in Nepal or something, and it's. He's trying to hit this <laughs> bottle, right? And and if he breaks the bottle after saying, after the the uh, the female cop says the name, well, that means something. And it's completely ridiculous. It's again one of those things that mm-hmm. that none of like your basic New York comedy writers are going to ever think of. You know, it doesn't have any mm-hmm. framework for mm-hmm. for normal comedy. It's just something that's completely. Uh, David Lynchian, you know, uh-huh. right, right, or the scene in Lost Highway where uh, Bill Pullman has traveled into Barth Balsargetti's body, and he's driving around with that. Uh, what's that guy? That's Dave yes, Laurent, basically, right? right? Um, and uh, and he, the, this guy's tailgating him, so he drives him off the road and beats the shit out of him for for tailgate like telling him about how he needs to learn how to you have proper manners on the road you recall that scene wait a minute isn't that in Mulholland Drive no that's in Lost Highway that's in Lost Highway with uh Mr. Mr. Big Shot right that's uh, Robert Logia yeah 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 yeah, yeah. oh okay I certainly remember the scene like that's completely bizarre no you're right okay yeah that's very funny like I think that's funny Mm -hmm. but um it uh, and actually, he uh, Lynch talks about how he got that performance mm. um, in in the masterclass episode. Mm. Um, okay, well, now having praised Lynch, and I think it's safe to say I just think he's just fantastic on every level, and I think that that one of the marks of of genius is is some mistakes made, and, and when things aren't so great, and I I've got two. Um, for instance, I think when he's moved into as great as his choices of music in the films are, uh, I think some of his own stuff is a little bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I think crazy clown time um, to me that just seems very predictable. I just think, ah, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's just not worth his his effort. And I'm not sure about rabbits. What 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 do you think about rabbits? My problem with rabbits is just that it never went anywhere for me, which was a, a lot of a lot of Inland Empire kind of didn't go anywhere. I, I've thought about revisiting it because it's free to watch on YouTube because there's no U.S. distributor currently, so YouTube hasn't pulled it. So I've been thinking about going to watch it, but it's three hours and. I'm just I, I can't remember it ever really doing anything. I could be wrong about this, but that that to me is like rabbits in a nutshell. It's a cool idea that goes on for too long. Okay, yeah, I guess that's um, I guess that's where I would end up. Um, I certainly thought that had more going for it than I mean I was just outright disappointed with with Crazy Clown Time and the whole sort of album. I just don't I don't know if um, if everything that he's done is worth the attention that, and I guess that's one of the problems when you're David Lynch. And also, you know, when you are famous as a filmmaker, that's kind of a big uh, celebrity sort of status. So people are interested in other things that you do. Um, his art, his painting doesn't do much for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting that he feels that he started off as a painter um, and has such good instincts Visually, I mean, it's haunting 
instincts. And yet I, I just don't, I don't know, the paintings don't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving on to maybe someone who I think is a kind of a weird compliment uh, to, to Lynch uh, in, in the visual arts, but in the dimensional arts, is uh, a woman named Patricia Piccinini, who, um, she was born in, uh, in Africa, but she's an Australian artist. Um, and she's famous. She's, she works across media. She's very, very talented. Um, she's, she's really, well, one of my definitions of a genius. Um, but she's famous for uh, silicon um, and fiberglass hyper-realist sculptures of mutant uh, hybrid uh, new age animal human forms mm-hmm. is that fair david would you yes yes they're very fleshy they're much like lynch's fleshy grasshopper there's a direct <laughs> line of of descendancy there and they they do have this uh dna transcendent sort of quality so their comments about science their comments about the future that we're going to inherit uh, there is uh, the young family, which she did about all oh, 15 years ago. It was the thing that kind of really made her famous. There is a, a sort of a sow-like creature, but very humanoid still, nursing these uh, piglet human creatures. That is, and that's just one of, of several. There's another image of what, if you see it from a distance. Um, and they, this is the, these are virtually life-size um, figures. Uh, they appear to be two boys playing some sort of, of Game Boy device, right? Okay. And as you get nearer, you realize their faces are really old. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very... It's just very disturbing. And, and she, she plays with these... Um, and I like the, the term that she, uh, or the phrase that she uses of what she's interested in is unexpected consequences. That's fantastic. That's fantastic because for whoever's listening who hasn't already looked her up, you might remember this from a few years back, one of her sculptures went viral and it was of a guy who has this very thick neck, almost like a, he looks like a little missile. And that was her rendering of what a human being might evolve to look like to survive a car crash. Like, what would a person, what, how would our physiology have to be made so that we could survive heavy impact like that? So it's this very disturbing, like her other things, melty-looking flesh creature. But he's got this big dome. His skull is encased in this huge missile-like protection. So um, unexpected consequences is great. Now, do you think that this goes towards the expressing end of the of the spectrum or the exploring end of the spectrum. Oh, I put her solidly in the in the exploring for a couple of reasons. I think she she really is adding to the bizarre uh, world of where art and science merge. And you know, this has really been going on for um, there, there's uh, I, I was. Um, I'll get some more details about her, but uh, she was a natural history illustrator in, in the, really the 17th, 18th century, who, uh, her last name is Marian, M-E-R-I-A-N, 
and she can be mentioned in the same breath as, as Audubon and Gould much later. And I, in a way, I think Patricia Piccinini is in that same great tradition of, of art informing our vision of um, natural history in the sense of science. Mm. We don't use that term natural history anymore, but the biological future, if you like, okay. the singularity, the singularity that we spoke about that we often think of purely in techno terms or sort of cyberpunk terms. Well, I don't think the fleshiness is going to go away. I think fleshy is kind of one of our totem words for this show. But the flesh ain't going to go away. It's just going to kind of be changed. It's going to take on a new, you know, character. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, Piccany is doing that. The other thing that I think is important to mention that She's doing that in a very fine arts gallery museum context, which gives it a whole new uh, gravitas, you know, that if it were in film, we're used to seeing all that stuff. We're used to seeing bizarre, you know, zombie monsters and all that. We kind of, I mean, I don't even pay attention, you know, really mm -hmm. to that mm -hmm. stuff anymore. Right. But when you walk into a major, say, municipal gallery or an arts festival, or something in this other register, and you're confronted with these amazingly accurate, fully rendered, and richly, you know, these are characters with life. That's what's missing in so many of our films and TV things. You know, they're just not brought to life with the intensity that this artist brings forth. I mean, that's, that's her genius. She really invests these monstrous or at least incredibly strange uh, creatures with a humanity or at least some sort of sentient personality that we can connect with. Um, and that's to me one of the, you know, certainly one of the definitions of great art. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the being forced to engage with something goes back to the Gottlieb quote, right? Right. Is that, you know, we create the, the space we, we impress upon you, uh, the world that we're trying to get across. You know, we're not giving things back to you, which could be said to be the major problem right now, I think, personally, with a lot of books, art, TV, movies, music, is that it does feel like it's giving us exactly what we want, which is fine sometimes. Maybe sometimes you just want to kick back with a brew and listen to a nice pop song. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, there's been an, an abundance of that and not enough stuff that confronts you. And what's interesting about um, Piccinini's work here, too, is that it, it's... I don't want to say it's aesthetically pleasing, right? Uh, but it is aesthetic, right? It's it's stylish, and it has, like you said, a life a lifelikeness to it. And it's almost... Um, she's inviting you into her world but she's made the barrier for entry very low because it's it's fascinating to look at first and foremost right well i mean i think that's that's exactly uh well said and i i've just found out that um i don't know much about her um her husband peter hennessy that name rings a bell but uh because I, I i lived in melbourne for for a long time um but I don't don't know. But they have done a project together, which readers, our listeners, might want to follow up on. Is "Alone with the Gods," which is kind of a nice title. It is, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. It appears to be some sort of, it's a multimedia sort of installation kind of thing. Um, I just I just found out about it. So I think that might be worth worth following up on. But um, she is, is just an interesting, interesting artist who's really capable across uh, a range of media. And I'm not sure you can really, I'm trying to think of who else that, really is, you know, they're making stuff with their hands and their whole bodies and their minds in a range of media. There just aren't that many people who are really doing that, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm, right. Um, it, a lot of people are really, uh, annoyingly, they're, they're kind of giving the, the forging, you know, of the work onto other people, onto other, you know. Right. And it's kind of like they're they're really doing a drawing, and here you know make this for me, you know, at uh, twenty feet high. Right. And uh, I think, well, that's not really. I'm not really good with that as a definition uh, of art. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I like the hands-on thing, and I, I think that's a good way maybe to introduce the uh, the third member for tonight um, is uh, the the very mysterious Harry Parch. Uh, he's actually from Oakland, which is my hometown. Um, I, I think some people would would know of him. He was a very, very lateral music composer. Uh, he also created many interesting musical instruments, as in invented them and, and handcrafted them. Uh, some of them very odd, like uh, a chromolodian. Mm-hmm. I mean, very weird. He he really radically revised the xylophone idea, um, and people like Paul Simon and Tom Waits and Patti Smith uh, have taken you know leaves out of his book. Certainly, Captain Beefheart and Zappa. Uh, very, uh, you know, um, but his he he was a weird, weird guy. Um, he had, for for a large part of his life, he actually was a hobo. Mm. Um, you know, during you know the the depression years, he was also uh, a very accomplished uh, musical uh, professor uh, at leading music schools like Mills College in in Oakland. Um, he radically. Uh, in reinvented the idea of, of tone. He divided the octave into 43 unequal tones. And he had had a range of, of uh, influences in this. The, the ancient Greeks, his own weird dreams, and being just a crazy hobo. <laughs> but he, he created these instruments that were, you know tuned in this entirely sort of different way. He did, uh, he drew on, on ancient Greek drama and uh, both kabuki and no theater from Japan. Um, some of his stuff was just wild. And it, fortunately, uh, I think it's a good thing that he was as embraced by the establishment as he was because he is the musical equivalent of uh, David of what we started talking with the outsider artists, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think his most famous piece is called Barstow, as in Barstow, California, and it's based on a series of hobo messages he found uh, written under this overpass, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful. Um, but he would be one of my ideas of genius of just someone completely. 
uh, from left field who managed to, to get enough support to keep body and soul together because he could have easily been dismissed as being just too out there. Right, you know? right, right. So that's very interesting what you said about him sort of translating these hobo sigils into into music. Is Am I getting that right? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So he's essentially taking those and the feelings that he gets from them do you know what his process was to make one go to the other uh you know i want to i should find out more about that now that you mentioned it because there is a beautiful story behind that uh and i believe there's even a documentary film uh it, it definitely connects you know there there's this sense of uh, there is a real inspiration process involved in, in his engagement with these, uh, you know, lost ghost words of of these, you know, vagrant men, right. um, who he clearly identified with, um, I think um, I think that would be worth some more investigation because he's he's a really um, he's kind of like one of the many ghosts of Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Harry Parch was if he wasn't. Uh, fully gay. He was certainly he was bisexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did have relationships with with uh, with these hobo men. He was kind of never entirely free of the hobo past. Even when he was teaching at a respectable university, I think he always knew that he was you know uh, in that sort of dry riverbed or under mm-hmm. the overpass. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what they say: it's, um, you can take you can take the hobo. Wait, you can take the avant-garde artist out of the hobo community, but you can't take the hobo community out of the avant-garde artist. Nice. Right? <laughs> well, that's okay. That is true. I think that's absolute. I think he's proved positive. Yeah, of that. absolutely. Um, but uh, but it's but so thinking about these these three right these three artists that I think uh, I think that we've done a pretty good job of sort of getting people interested in them. If you're not already interested in David Lynch, I'm surprised that you're listening to us. But if, if you haven't seen his films, go watch them. So what do you think is the uniting factor here? What's the artistic genius that unites these three very different, very weird, very kind of outsider, in some cases, artists together under this under this umbrella of artistic genius? Okay. Uh, well, I have an answer to that. And I, I think... Um, that there are two ways to sort of interrogate that. One is to get your view of, of that. And then once we've heard that, to then maybe look at a couple of other examples to see if my theory holds up okay. or if my framework is translatable. Okay. I'm going to say the thing that, to me, if I were, say, teaching those three uh, very eccentric uh, artistic personalities, those those minds, those imaginations, those three imaginations. I would say the uniting principle is a profound sense of secret private world, mm. uh, which they have had, thank God, enough faith in uh, to put forth into the larger world. Right. Um, I, I think it's so. It's the, it's two things. I mean, they really have distinct private, idiosyncratic visions, dream worlds. But they also, uh, thank goodness, have had the courage and the faith in in those worlds, maybe the faith in those worlds more than faith in themselves, Mm -hmm. uh, to want to share them. Yes. 
and to to feel just almost religiously uh, obligated to share in in some sort of you know religion that we that none of us know you know that doesn't have a name. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, that's brilliant. I love that. That's great. So, does that ring true for you? Do you do you kind of get those two things of of the 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 secret world and also a deep sense of personal courage or or faith in that world. Yeah, I was going to say something very similar. I was going to add on a a kind of um <clears throat> a kind of talent. I'm not sure that I want to tack that on to your description because I love it so much and I think that when you bring in this idea of of talent, I think it sort of muddies the water because then we'd have to go and, you know, define what exactly that means. And that's just a discussion I think maybe for another time, but the the secret inner world resonates so clearly with somebody like David Lynch, who is famous in his interviews when people ask him what his movies mean, he will never uh, humor the interviewer who's trying to do that. He, he once said that, I do these interviews and they want me to talk about my movies, but what people don't realize is that the movies are the talking. So I think this kind of idea of art as... Um, the art itself is a, a sort of map to the territory that is their own internal exploration, right? And so they're not giving you any answers to why these creatures look so strange or why this music sounds this way or why this film did X, Y, Z. What they are doing is they're spending much more time than your average human being does in a kind of internal reflection whether that's David Lynch's uh, Catching the Big Fish, his, his Transcendental Meditation. I'm not aware of the other two artists doing something like that, but the vibe that I get from them is that they're largely private people that aren't going to sit at a, you know, at a bar over a beer and tell you exactly sort of what it all means. But instead, it's people who have gone to these depths, gone to these territories, and then have sort of tried to, using their... their their talents, their inherent talents, there's that word again, to sort of sketch out what it is that they've seen uh, while they're on these these journeys, right? So it's that, it's that, I think that your definition is perfect. I feel like I'm largely repeating what you've just said, but I, I love that so much. I think you nailed it. Okay, well, thanks. Look, I've got, you, you've said some things that have got me thinking, uh, and I, I want to, because so, I think they're, they're germane to this. Um, one of the things it's some I mean when we're talking about this earlier of the the position that we're in confronting these artists, it reminded me of an experience when I was out uh, doing the the daily hike with my uh, my dingo in Australia, and uh, we would cover quite a lot of ground, and one day we were we rounded this this corner in, in pretty dense bush but there's a trail old this is old gold rush uh country in australia um and these two blue tongue lizards and these are fairly good size they're skinks they have sort of diamond shaped heads they're about a foot and a half maybe 14 inches long uh, and they're thick they're muscular looking danger they they're not dangerous but they look Intense, and they've often been used in films, uh, you know, to be giant dinosaurs, right? Because they're scary looking. And they open their mouths, and they have this beautiful blue tongue. It's it's part of their scare mechanism, you know. And uh, 
it's bluer than giraffe tongues are purple. I, I don't know if people mm-hmm. know that giraffe tongues are kind of in the purple zone because they don't want to get sunburnt tongues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these lizards are really intense and they're fighting, right? Mm-hmm. And so the dog and I just stop and we're just absolutely fascinated. And I have to confess, I felt this sudden need for David Attenborough's voice (laughs) to come in over and explain to me, was I seeing uh, two males fighting over a female that it wasn't visible, two males fighting over territory? Was this a male and a female, part of the mating ritual? Mm -hmm. And I, David Attenborough didn't come on. And I was just left watching this amazing scene of these reptiles just duking it out for their lives mm-hmm. and no one no one told me what i was having what i was seeing right. and i realized i am in that naked vulnerable position of ages and ages ago or you know the beginnings of science of having to watch something or art you know the unreviewed piece of art mm-hmm. where you don't get to see what you know did they get three stars or four stars you uh-huh. know no, you have to make up your own minds about it. And I think that's the other thing that genius does is it, it forces us into those situations. Genius and art, I mean. I think it forces us to, to, to think for ourselves in a, in a kind of terrifying way. Yeah, yeah. You know? it reminds me of, of two quick stories that happened here, very close to my home. One of them happened about 10 years ago now. But I was going to the gas station to buy beer, and when I came out of it, a gentleman approached me who had a pirate ship tattooed on his face, and he asked me, a full pirate ship took up most of his face, and he asked me if I had an Xbox. He said, do you have an Xbox? And I said, no, man, I'm sorry. He's like, and he's holding a loaf of bread in his hands, and he says, well, I have some bread. And I said, that's great. And then I drove off. To this day, I have no idea what was going on with that. I have Was he asking me if he could play my Xbox? Maybe he'd bring the bread with him. In his mind, was that a valid trade? Was that, was that, was that an okay thing to do? And then <clears throat> the other one happened about two weeks ago. I was driving home from dropping my wife off at work. And very near to my house, I see this woman who is, uh, she's got about four bicycle tires on each arm and she's got a bicycle tire around her neck and she's riding a bicycle and as i'm you know walking or i'm driving past uh, her she's like trying to pedal in place and is just shouting obscenities at me as i pass and again no idea what's going on with that, but those those are two encounters that I had with people amongst many here in good old Oklahoma that your story of the of the blue tongued lizards really reminded me of where there's there's no roadmap for how to navigate that you're you're not going to get much deeper by going to that person and asking them to explain themselves. It's just human no, art right it's human art right, right, you know, and I mean, I think that uh I can remember, you know, I started off wanting to, to write plays and, and, and for the theater back when it was still sort of affordable and there was kind of an off-off-Broadway world that was, you know, that's where a lot of really cool stuff was happening. 
And it was poetry and it was performance and it was also just weird masks and it could be anything, you know. So it was exciting at first. And yet, you know, coming out of this sort of nice drama club sort of America world of, you know, uh, Thornton Wilder, you know, and Our Town and stuff like that. I remember when reading this uh, a remark by Harold Pinter, who I, I think was a really, really important uh, writer in any medium, but I think he changed theater. Um, and he said, you know, an actor or a character who has no explanation of why he's on stage is every bit as valid as a character who has a great deal of explanation. Mm. And that completely blew everything wide open because, I mean, that's exactly what we deal with in life. I mean, could you ask the guy why is there a pirate ship on his face? (laughs) Well, yeah, you could, but there's no explanation that's going to really, you know, Mm -hmm. cover that, is there? I mean, there's just not. And it's it's just it that's not the point the point of this explanation driven society is is really quite uh stupid you well, know the, that's really what it's it the is the obsession that we have with putting origin stories behind everything you know it's george lucas making three star wars movies to come before the other Star Wars right. movies so that we know all the details that nobody really cared about to begin with. That was the problem, many problems with those films, but the major issue with them is that they had no reason to exist. Who cares? It's not important, right? Well, the force is actually midichlorians, which is inside your blood. Everybody rolled their eyes, a collective rolling of the eyes. Not me because I was in sixth grade and I love Star Wars. So it took me a while to learn that those movies had problems with them. But um, or, you know, The Joker, the movie that recently came out, which I thought was really good, actually. But this idea of the origin story, why is the Joker like he is? Why is he always after Batman? Why is he so crazy? Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm so with you. Well, I'm so I mean, with you. You know, and in the movie, they give him a mother who is who has psychological problems of her own and who, you know, he has a dark past where he was abused and all this kind of stuff. And again, the film is very capable. Todd Phillips did a good job on it. There's a reason why there were all those Oscar nods. But uh, but it's a movie that doesn't really need to exist, right? Because the, the Joker is much scarier in The Dark Knight where he has no backstory. And he's just this Heath Ledger's performance is this kind of spooky force of nature that just wants to mess things up is much more effective artistically, right? That's that's getting closer to, to the art of the whole thing. Oh, look, I couldn't agree more. I just actually was, you know, in the textbook I'm, I'm writing, uh, you know, the Rutledge Press thing. I mean, I, I say, you know, like, I, and I keep saying, almost any backstory is too much backstory. Um, I mean, I think that's always kind of been true, but I think it's more and more true. But it's beautifully true with like the like the explaining supervillains thing. I mean, we don't care. I it, I don't remember ever asking about why why the penguin. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just it never crossed my mind. <laughs> right. um, you know, 
Yeah. You just accept that these people are crazy. I mean, that's the whole idea of, of stereotypical characters or stock characters is that you don't need to explain them. Well, you know? and it's, you know, even Batman. So you start off knowing Batman's backstory that his parents were killed by, you know, petty thugs. And so that that snaps something in his brain. How much interesting, how much more interesting would Batman be as a character if you just scrubbed that? And you never know why this billionaire puts on a costume to beat up people. That now, now you're getting interesting, right? Now he's just as scary as the Joker is. But we're going to have to team teach like a, a, a writing workshop where we deconstruct people's whole edifice of of, of you know premise yeah. and situation and watch their faces because. What will happen is I think there will be a recognition that instantaneously that makes everything so much more interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there was a there was a young Indiana Jones series that I watched when I was a kid. But if you take the Indiana Jones films uh, as a good example of this, at least in the first, there is a lot of allusion to Indiana Jones having a very dark past. I mean, even the Marion, the the female lead in that film. By the timelines that she's talking about, it seems like Indiana Jones was romancing her when she was about 14 or 15 years old, right? And he kind of shows up at the beginning of the film and, you know, he's got this enemy and you don't you don't know why these two guys hate each other. You never really learn the backstory between why him and Bellic don't get along that well. They just don't, right? And the movie just moves along. And that's why at least that first one, I think, is such a classic well, because it's also a great adventure film, and Harrison Ford is amazing as Indiana Jones, but there's a lot of of questions that just are insinuations, right? You don't really know much about the character, and you never really learn that much. What, he's afraid of snakes? That's it. I, sorry right. to go on an Indiana Jones tangent there, but I, I thought that was relevant. No, I think that's interesting. I haven't thought of Indiana. Well, I, I did think of Indiana Jones a little bit because I was watching the Ron Howard uh, masterclass. But, you know, I, 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 when we think about backstories, I, the other thing that I, which I do like, like, if I don't like backstory, most of the time I don't unless it's really just very, you know, out of left field. I, I like the uh, the Sherlock Holmes technique of the the references to stories and episodes or adventures that never get fleshed out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like um, you know the giant rat of Sumatra. You know, right. uh, and and that kind of I, so pointing people off off stage off camera. I think is an interesting. Uh, technique and I like that. I but I don't know why that that we need um, the backstory explanation and the hand holding, mm-hmm. um, except that it is this kind of mirroring. You know, it's just like that's what people seem to want. Um, well, then it falls into the realm of it, like you're not really ex- exploring anymore. Like you would say, like, well, let's explore this backstory, but not really. You have a third word there, which is explaining. You're explaining something. And exploring isn't explaining. It's Again, it's that journey. It's what we talked about with the artistic genius, the person who has a deep inner world, who is willing to sort of like, you know, give you this sort of map, but then also there be dragons, right? So you kind of, or there be monsters. I forget the way that that, that one works. But it's, it's, it's this different, it's these two different things. It's like there's expression, explaining, and exploring. So we have three now. 
<laughs> but the exploring is the important part. Well, look, I think that we've... Um, I, I like that the... I feel comfortable with the definition direction, at least the vector of definition that, that we've applied to genius. I, I think it would be interesting to, to do at least one more episode on this to sort of review some uh, some people from other fields to see how this kind of definition indexes. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that for next time? Looking a little bit, see if this theory works. I, yeah, let's let's do some means testing. That's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. I think that's a, um, I think that uh, I can think of a few people. Um, I mean, maybe it'd be interesting to explore some writers, people maybe like Borges. Yes. I think that would be um, maybe, maybe interesting. Um, I was actually rereading some Kafka, and I know that uh, that you share my admira admiration for Kafka. I mean, I think just Kafka is just in a category all his own. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll think of maybe a few other people to uh, to talk about. Um, yeah, I um, I do have something uh, to to share on this uh, theme. Um, it's actually it's it's a poem I've, called "Elegy for a Genius." Um, one of the few people that I've known in my life who I thought just was certainly in that category and who unfortunately um, did die well, well too early to fulfill that immense promise. But um, that uh, it's not a long... Do you, do you, would you be interested in hearing it? Of course. It? New writing by Chris. I am always interested in hearing it. Please continue. Okay. So this is Elegy for a Genius. Uh, and this was someone who... Um, Although depression and suicide did uh, take over, and this is someone who was a joyful spirit in, in many, many ways. The sky didn't go dark for the ceremony. The serpent's jaws only opened wider and wider, and out popped three terrier puppies that had devoured moments earlier. The clay target shooters all applauded. We used to lounge over hookahs and gin inventing new diseases, like the one where people become obsessed with falconry and can't draw a clock face the right way. He composed music for duck call, preferably tiger maple. Music for reflex hammer, theremin, artificial larynx, an anti-stuttering device. He taught me that a monarch butterfly is an illuminated manuscript. He fell from a tower into a pit and became a cloud, leaving behind the arcane technology of totemic machines, kendo helmets as bird cages, enormous pudding dolls in deserted playgrounds, Hailstorms of skeleton keys. If a kangaroo were the size of a mouse, would it still be a kangaroo, he asked. I'm afraid that no one will ever ask me that kind of question again. Among the dead's final effects, a bottle of phosphorescent sargasso seahorses an apparent board game played with fragments of meteorites and intricate blueprints for a giant mechanical crocodile. 
whether the latter was intended as an engine of war or curious entertainment remains unknown. <laughs>